Have you ever gotten to a, a place in life that felt like something of a finish line? And, and once you get there, a question comes up, right? What next? I wonder what that moment or moments are for you. In the life of faith, it, it can feel at times that we talk about in the Christian faith tradition, we, we, we can talk about um, coming to faith in Jesus, professing Jesus Christ as Savior, as, as something of a finish line. Um, at least that's the way I see it represented frequently, especially in the context of baptism, right? It looks like this kind of graduation ceremony of sorts. Um, and yet, in so many ways, that's just the beginning and that question becomes, what, what, what comes next? You know, last week I shared that I had a conversation with a couple in my office a few months ago, and I've had variations of this conversation so many times, uh, both as a pastor here at AUMC and, and, and previously uh, at my former appointment. And, um, and the question for this couple, there was one specifically about our baptismal questions, and, and, and the question that we ask folks who are professing their faith and it sounds really standard in stock. Do, do you profess Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and do you promise to serve Him as your Lord, right? Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I mean, those words can even kind of roll off our tongues if you were raised in the church or you've been around Christianity for any length of time. But when we stop to think about that, that's a, that's a bold claim. And I would say two different ones, to believe in Jesus as Savior and to believe in Jesus as Lord. These are, these are two different titles, I think, for a reason. Last week we talked about all the ways we can understand Jesus as Savior. In fact, I gave you six. Some might say too many, but um, you know, uh, it, was a, it was a lot. Um, we talked about all the ways that we can understand who Jesus is and how Jesus provides a saving work in our lives. And this week I want to look at the second part of that statement, to look at what does it mean to serve Jesus as Lord? Capital L, Lord bigger than presidents, bigger than Caesars, bigger than little K kingdoms, capital L, Lord. To help us in, in this conversation, we're going to take a look at the gospel of John chapter 13. And if you've got your Bibles with you now, I encourage you to open up to, to John chapter 13, beginning in verse 31. You know, the Gospel of John is interesting. It's a unique one amongst the four Gospels. You know, the, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, they spend the majority of their time describing uh, the life and ministry of Jesus. And then towards the closing chapters, they go over his last week upon this earth in his crucifixion and, and resurrection. John's Gospel is different. It's different in many different ways, but it's different in terms of storytelling because about half of the Gospel is devoted to the last week of Christ. So the first half of John's gospel is about his life and ministry, and the whole second half is about his last week of life. And the whole 13th chapter is really just about one evening. Uh, in the other gospels, we see the image of the Lord's, or of the Last Supper, which today is World Communion Sunday. But in John's gospel, it's different because he's got to be different. And instead, Jesus offers a foot washing. He hikes up his robes and ties them around, and then he gets down onto his hands and knees with a basin of water, and he takes his disciples' feet. These men have walked 
hundreds of miles throughout dirty, rocky desert. I mean, these guys' feet were, were well-worn. They wore sandals. I can't imagine they were the most beautiful in the world. But he holds them tenderly. All his disciples, even Judas is there. And he washes them like a servant. And then he makes the party a little awkward. And he says, one of you is going to betray me. And Judas says, it's time for me to go. And then we pick up in verse 31. John's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 31. It says, when Judas had gone, Jesus said, now the human one has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify the human one in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I'm with you for just a little while longer. You'll look for me, but just as I told the Jewish leaders, I also tell you now, where I'm going, you can't come. I give you a new commandment, love each other. Just as I have loved you, so you also must love each other. This is how everyone will know that you are my disciples when you love each other. Hmm. A new commandment, huh? I mean, it sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Love each other. It sounds a whole lot like what is shared in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke when, when Jesus is approached by these same Jewish leaders that he references here, and they say, oh, we're going to trip him up now. Jesus, do you know what the greatest commandment is? And Jesus is like, I know my Hebrew scriptures, guys. I know Deuteronomy. And he quotes Deuteronomy back at them, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Upon this hangs all the law and the prophets, Jesus says. So it's not so much a new commandment, is it, to love each other? But maybe. Because sometimes when we hear love God and love neighbor, we kind of hear it in that order. And we can misinterpret in the Christian faith that what we're meant to do is first love God. This is about a personal relationship with the Lord. You've got to really focus on your personal relationship with God. And then... If you got some time, if your calendar is not full, if you're in a good mood, if people in your life deserve it, then maybe, you know, spread the love. But not too much. Let's not go overboard. Love God and then, yeah, sure, love your neighbor. We hear it almost in a prioritized order. But here, here in John's gospel, Jesus is offering it differently. In fact, he makes it even simpler. He just says, love each other. It's so simple for Jesus. In fact, he says that same phrase, love each other, three times, love each other. Just as I loved you, love each other. How are people going to know you're my disciples? Love each other. And when Jesus says something three times, we better listen, friends. So let's break down what he means when he says these things. Let's talk about this, what seems really simple, new commandment, and, and why it does change for us what comes next, so to speak, what it means to serve Christ is Lord. That word love, love, love. Kenton just sang about love. Love is such a mushy word, such an easily moldable word. We can bend it and twist it into anything we want it to mean, really. And maybe that's why the Greek language has so many words for love. 
unlike English, you know, because I can say I love tacos, I love the cowboys, and I love Jesus Christ, and it's the same word, and it's weird. It's a weird, mushy word. I can do things to you that are incredibly harmful and mean and call it love. So what does Jesus say when he says love? Well, the word that Jesus uses is this Greek word agape. It's a specific word for love. It doesn't mean just loving tacos. It doesn't even mean the way that I love my own brother. It's beyond romantic love. It's beyond fraternal love. It's beyond familial love. It is like cosmically divine love. The word agape is meant to capture somehow the heart of God, the way that God loves us, that kind of love to to delight in, to care for, to be affectionate towards, to greatly value, to be generous to, to, to risk opening your heart to a cosmic degree, agape love. Jesus says, I want you to agape each other. Hmm. It's the highest form of love. And you know what's interesting is that we are so incredibly adept at complicating the command to agape each other, to love each other. We say, well, Jesus, what does love mean really? You know? And what if they don't deserve it, Jesus? Are there any conditions to this? Did you hear any conditions in this? We are so good at complicating this ultimately simple command to agape each other. And I think Jesus knows that we're good at this, and so then he says, okay, if you're wondering what this looks like, let me explain. The way that I have loved you. So now he's placing himself in the divine role right? He's saying uh, this agape love, this cosmic divine love, if you're wondering what it looks like, it looks like the way that I've loved you. That's what loving each other looks like. And so we stop and think, and what has Jesus just shown them love looks like? It's not a, a rabbi scolding his students. It's not a, a master lording little L over his servants. It's the Son of God hiking up his robes, undignifying himself, getting down, sorry camera guys, on hands and knees, carrying a heavy basin of water, taking in these well-worn feet, even the feet of the one who will betray him, and tenderly washing them one by one. That's the image of love that Christ offers us. That's what agape looks like. It's a teacher adopting the role of the student, a master adopting the station of a servant. It's extending mercy to the same man. And by the way, Judas, you aren't the only one, Peter, who's going to betray me, and extending mercy to every single one of them, perhaps even reminding them of their baptismal call that is about to lead Jesus to a place that they won't go, and that is the cross. That's what agape love looks like, according to Jesus. What I hear Jesus doing almost for for these disciples is helping them to redefine what it means to be holy. You know, because agape love, this divine love, I mean, you're really getting into it when you start to adopt the position of God yourself and saying this is what God's love looks like. Because these are men who had been raised in a tradition that said God lives in that stony temple over there that no one's allowed into except for the most high and holy amongst us. And you got to wear really clean robes with lots of nice gems on them, and you can't be around those kinds of people. And you got to make sure that you're nice and clean and pure and perfect. And then if you're lucky and you're really old, you might make it in if you been a good, good boy for long enough, and I did say good, good boy for long enough. And Jesus says, that's not really how this love looks in reality. 
It's not sealed away behind a stone building. It's not reserved for only the most pure and perfect amongst us. It's actually a kind of love that gets down onto its hands and knees in an undignified fashion and washes the feet of the undeserving. And it's an unconditional love that's poured out for you and for many, as we say. Holiness calls us to the low station and not the high pedestal. We hear this idea of holiness, and we tend to think of holier than thou, and Jesus is saying that's not what this is about. If you want to live into this agape-style love, this holiness of God, then you've got to be willing to step down, to, uh, to go to the low places, the low station, and not seek out the high pedestal. Then he goes on to to further challenge them to say, in case you're not understanding how important this is, he says, this is the way that everyone will know you are my disciples, which is another way of saying that you love me. You say you love God and you love neighbor. Well, guess what? The way that people will know that you love God is based upon how you love neighbor. That's how important this is. Everything else we've been doing for three years, disciples, all of it leads up to right now, final exam time, what matters most. You better take a long, hard look at how you love each other, he says, because that's what people will see. That's what the world will know. He reorders this original great commandment and starts not with God but with others. And he's doing something here that I see Jesus do throughout the Gospels, not just in John. In Luke, it sounds this way. Jesus says, you know, you know a tree by its fruit. He's talking to people about what it means to be faithful. And he says, well, you know a tree by its fruit. What he's saying is, you can't tell me it's a peach tree when all I see is apples. Right? If you're, if you're saying that you, that you love God, but I'm not seeing the fruit born of that supposed love, then maybe the tree isn't what you thought it was. Maybe that faith you had isn't quite what you think it is. In the Gospel of Matthew, he speaks even more plainly. He says, not all those who cry, Lord, Lord, right, and have that big hurrah graduation, I believe in Jesus as my Savior, not every one of them will get to enjoy the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, you know how I know that? Because I came to you naked and you didn't clothe me. I came to you hungry and you didn't feed me. I came to you thirsty and you offered nothing to drink. I was in prison, you didn't break my chains. I was in the hospital, you didn't visit me. You say, Lord, Lord, but you don't live like it. And they say, when did that happen, Jesus? He says, if you did it for anyone, you did it for me. And not just anyone, but the least of these, you did it for me. So what I hear him doing here is Jesus does this thing where he connects. He suggests that our actions can reveal the state of our faith. Not that our actions are what save us, but our actions can reveal the state of our faith. If I say, I love you, Jesus, but I live like that's not true, then do I really possess the faith that I claim to have? If as the Christian church we profess a faith in Christ, but then we lead communities and neighborhoods and even nations that look nothing like the values of Jesus, are we a faithful people? Jesus is challenging us here. They are going to know, they are going to know if you are my disciples, if you are my followers, if you love me based upon the way that you love each other. Our actions can reveal the state of our faith. And so then the question becomes, what comes next, Jesus? Well, here's what comes next in the story. Peter speaks, because of course it's always Peter has to speak up. See, Peter heard Jesus say something and he stopped listening. He heard, Peter, he heard Jesus say, I'm going to leave soon. 
And Peter goes, oh, geez, I better figure out where he's going. Because, you know, if you don't know this, Peter is like the best disciple. He's so good. He always gets all the answers right, and he does everything perfect all of the time. And Jesus, he won't say it, but he loves him the most, super duper. And so Peter's like, well, Jesus, what do you mean you're leaving, buddy? You got to bring your right-hand man with you, don't you? Come on, it's Peter. Jesus, I'll go wherever you go. I would lose my life for you, Jesus. And Jesus says, really? Really? He says, I'll tell you what, Peter. Before the rooster crows three times, this is nighttime when he says this, before sunrise, you're going to deny who I am three times. Deny that you know me three times. Peter says, oh, not me not me. Guess who's right? Good answer, Nathan. It was Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is taken into custody after being betrayed by Judas, and the law enforcement officers there are looking for his associates, right? We got this criminal, and, and who's running with him? And they look to Peter and say, hey, you know this guy? And Peter says, not me. And someone else be up, no, 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 I just saw him. No, it was not me. And then one person goes, you were just having a weird foot washing party with him. No, that was not me. Cock-a-doodle-doo. And in that moment, Peter feels about this big. Doesn't get to talk to Jesus again until after the crucifixion and the resurrection. Jesus discovers the disciples fishing after he's resurrected. And he calls them over, and Peter comes up. Can you imagine how Peter feels in that moment? And Peter asks for forgiveness, like any of us would. I'm so sorry. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Peter says, yeah, I love you, Lord. Jesus says, feed my sheep. Jesus says, Peter, do, do you love me? love me. Peter says, yes, Jesus, I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. And then Jesus says for the third time, Peter, do you love me? And this time he says, do you agape me, Peter? Do you remember that word, Peter? You know what I mean, Peter? And Peter says, yes, I agape you, Jesus. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. Because our actions reveal the state of our faith. Peter, you can't love me. You can't say, Lord, Lord. You can't say, Savior, if you're not prepared to feed my sheep. Get down on your hands and knees with these sheep that are eating out of your hands and getting slobber all over your hands and getting their wool all over your everything and messing up your everything. If you're not prepared for that kind of a life, then you don't really know what you're saying. Are you ready to feed my sheep? John Wesley was the founder of this thing called Methodism. I don't think he saw this coming necessarily. He was leading this movement within his Anglican tradition, and he was really committed to this idea that our actions and our faith, our beliefs, are inherently tied together. In fact, he believed that true faith would be accompanied almost immediately by faithful actions as well. He famously said this, there is no holiness but social holiness. 
There's no holiness but social holiness. What he meant by that was he, he was living in a time and a place where uh, he was trying to shake his church awake from this position where they were stuck inside of cold stone buildings where God was reserved away from some certain people and only the perfect and pure could enter in. And, and people were more concerned about personal prayer and their Bible study and maybe even their faithful conversations with people that looked and talked and thought just like them. And he said, do you not see the cold miners out there on their way to work? Do you not see the people who can't get health care that they desperately need? Do you not see the widow who can't put food on her table? Do you not see the children who can't get a good education? And you guys are sitting in a cold stone building talking about how Jesus is Lord. He says, there's no holiness but social holiness. John Wesley could pray and fast and read scripture with the best of them, but he also knew that all of that was worthless if it didn't change the face of the earth in a meaningful way if it didn't improve people's lives in a substantive way, if it didn't approach the world around us with a spirit of humility where we hike up our robes, undignify ourselves, and wash the feet of those around us without condition. Today is World Communion Sunday. And I think it's important for Christians to acknowledge that we have, you might say, a sketchy past when it comes to social holiness. We love the idea of transforming the world, but for many, many years and generations, that has looked like what? Empire, colonialism, saying, I know what's best for you. I'm going to love you so much that it hurts. It's my world, and you're simply living in it. So this World Communion Sunday, I wonder if we could remember the call that we receive in John 13. And we could see the image of the Last Supper and also see a water basin. And as we prepare to, in spirit and faith, hold hands with sisters and brothers and siblings around the world of the earth and and who are celebrating communion alongside of us, could we see ourselves not as little L lords over little K kingdoms, but could we remember that baptismal call that what's next is humility, what's next is mercy, what's next is compassion, what's next is stepping into the world with hands held open, prepared to wash feet. May it be true here at AUMC, in our streets, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our cities, throughout every corner of the earth. May it be true today, tomorrow. May it ever be so. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for the example that you set for us through your Son, Jesus the Christ, who reminds us of that clarion call to simply love each other. And when we wonder what love looks like, God, you undignify yourself. You take our feet in your hands, wherever they have tread, however well-worn they may be, And though we may prove to be unfaithful in just moments' time, you wash our feet nonetheless, and you say, this is what love looks like. It looks like compassion. 
and mercy and God-sized cosmic love with a humble and yet passionate spirit that can transform the world, not from the top down, but from the bottom up. God, help us to so love you that we live like your son, Jesus. That not only could Jesus be our Savior, but Jesus could be our Lord. Not only could we claim to love you, but God, we could live like it. It's in his holy and precious and merciful name that we pray and we say, Amen.